Season 2 of the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mack. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. You can find us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. I want to welcome our guest to this episode of the podcast. That's Brad Schiller. He has over 25 years' experience in the business. He's been a lighting designer, lighting director, lighting programmer, media designer, media programmer. He's worked on the Academy Awards, the Olympic Games, the opening and closing ceremonies, Crystal Method, Metallica, Smashing Pumpkins, corporate events, sort of you name it. He's been employed by three of the majors, High End Systems, Verilite, and Martin Professional. And perhaps most interestingly, he wrote the, he literally wrote the book on what it is that we do. He wrote the Automated Lighting Programmer's Handbook, which is available from Focus Press. Uh, Brad, welcome. Hi, Jason. Hi. Did I miss anything? Uh, you missed the PLSN. Oh, I'm sorry. So yes, <laughs> okay. you also write a monthly column for PLSN. Yes. I'm on my uh, 15th year of doing that. It's pretty crazy. Amazing. So that's 15 times 12, so that's a lot of back issues to go back and read. Yes, definitely. Uh, what do you focus on in the magazine? Uh, it, it varies. I basically have uh, openness to write whatever I want, which is great. I love that with PLSN, but mainly it's about lighting programming. So sometimes I talk very serious and explain exactly you know, how to patch or things like that, or other times it'll be a little more uh, just general knowledge or something about just life of how you should behave when you're programming, or I'll try to be witty and funny. I, I did one once that was challenging myself to write in all rhyming. So I always write 1,200 words. So I did this one that rhymed and they did really great graphics uh, that made it look like Dr. Seuss. And it was like, so you want to be a lighting programmer? It it was really fun. And in fact, that's the only one that they let me publish twice because it was so popular. So we have got to go back and check that out. Yeah. The column is called Feeding the Machines. (laughs) And and real quick, that that actually came from uh, when I was programming the Olympics the lighting designer, John Raymond, he would, as we would write cues, all of us in the group would write these cues. He would say, okay, feed the machines cue number seven. And that would be record cue seven. Nice. But he would say, feed the machines. I love it. Yeah. So speaking of feeding the machines and programming, so you've been a programmer for about as long as there have been programmers. Is that Would you say that's correct? Uh, pretty much, yes. Can you tell us about that job? The, the job, you know, the job that essentially you're one of the people who created and sort of what it is to be a programmer. Sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's changed a lot over the years. But back in the beginning, back in the early, early days of uh, late 90s or early 90s, it was a lot of purely data entry. You know, we used to work with the designers who would just say, okay, I want these lights, move them here, make them do a, a ballyhoo. Or they really, you didn't really get so involved as we do today in the creativity. You really had to just do data entry. And along with that, you had to have a great personality and, of course, know how these these controllers worked. And back at that time, the controllers were unique to each and every fixture type. So you would have an Intelbeam controller that was an LED uh, push-button controller, and you'd have another controller for another type of light, and you had to work these different systems together and then hopefully tie them together in some way, either through MIDI or through uh, zero to 10 volt controls or something like that. I don't know if it's been long enough for you, but it's been long enough for me that I'm almost nostalgic for those LCD controllers. (laughs) Yeah, they're pretty crazy. And you call them LCD, but before the LCD, there were LED controllers. Oh. Because the the displays on the the old high-end systems controllers 
were these three LED windows that just displayed uh, numbers 0 through 99. Wow. And then they upgraded at some point to an LCD version that actually had some text so you could read and understand a little bit more of what you were doing. So before those, you, you had to like see the fixtures, know what condition they were in, and then store things. And there was no information on the controller at all about what you were doing. Correct. You were just, you would get some basic numbers, but it didn't necessarily mean, like if you were storing positions, it was position 1 through 99. If you're lucky enough to store positions. <laughs> A lot of times you couldn't even do that. Um, so everything was just numeric data like that back in the day. So I can see why data entry was essentially what you were doing back then. Mm -hmm. When did that start changing? Um, that started changing about the time that we started getting more consoles. I mean, around that same time, you know, Verilite had their Artisan console, of course, and uh, LSD had their Icon console. And so there were these consoles, but again, they were dedicated just to their one type fixture type or their one brand of fixtures. Well, although to be fair, Artisan is a very, very different device than those controllers you were talking about a moment ago. Yes, it is. But it, but again, it was tied just to that and specifically to those early Verilites. So when I think the, the programming really changed, at least in my world area, was when we started getting into these other desks like the Navigator and the Animator and Scan Commander because they then started to let you control multiple fixture types on one desk. So that was a Selco product and Avo product? Uh, yes. And then Scan Commander was a MA product. And so that begins this, more that there's a programmer job title rather than, rather than that you operate the Intellibeams and you operate the Verilites. Right. And, and going back to those, those early days, those LED controllers and Intellibeams and things, you were just data entry for a designer if the designer was using them on a show. With, and typically, you were lucky if you had a show with 20 or more fixtures. These were small shows. <laughs> um, you'd either be working with a designer as data entry or you would be the moving light guy and your job would be go on the gig and you would be in charge of those 20 IntelliBeams and you'd have to know how they worked and you'd have to know how to program them and when something went wrong and Iris stuck you would be the guy going up on the ladder to fix it you were kind of a one-stop shop for everything I see and so of course that took away some of your programming time because when an Iris stuck or whatever you're the one going over to fix it and you're not at the desk or the, the controller anymore so how, have, so how have things changed since then? <laughs> They've changed quite a lot, which is great. Um, right now what happens is more often, I mean, I'm sure there's still positions that guys go out and are the moving light guy on a, on a ballroom show and they take the 20 lights and they put them all up and program it and run it. Um, but in, in the bigger professional world, it's definitely become that a programmer is now part of the design team. Um, so that you're, you're actually part of the design team, you're working with the creative input with the designer, and they're hiring you because they trust your knowledge and your input into their show. They're not just hiring you for data entry anymore. They're hiring you for the knowledge of the desk and the fixtures and, and of how to light the production that you're working on. And that's for a couple of reasons, right? Yeah, it's for many reasons. One, the designers now are so busy, and they, they can't take the time to learn the desk to understand what all can be done, and they know the programmers have worked on lots of different shows and have that knowledge and that breadth of, of information to bring to it and say, oh, you know what, what if we do the chase this way, or I can build an effect that will do this or that that the designer may not have thought of, that then they can say, yeah, that sounds great, let's, let's go for that. You know, a, real, a really good description, too, of, of how it's changed over the years, particularly in the television world. Um, back in 96, I was fortunate enough to get to program on the Oscars. And back then on the Oscars, we were just listed as a lighting board operator, myself and uh, the guys that were there with Verilite on the Artisans. And they realized shortly after that, that if they were listed as lighting directors, then they would share in the production team if it was nominated or won an Emmy. So the Oscars I worked on, Greg Brunton actually won an Emmy for that Oscar 
but I wasn't part of that because of being a, a lighting board operator. Now, if you look at any of these big television shows, the, the programmers are listed as lighting directors because in that television world, that then enables them to be recognized as part of the team and thus recognized for awards as well, which I think is great. I think it's great how it's come to be a really recognized position that the programmer is not just a data entry person and that we truly are part of that team. And sort of what do you see for the future of programming? Uh, what I think in the future, I think you're going to see more and more of the, the creativity side coming forward and less and less of the, the computer geekery, as I like to call it. Because right now, when, when you program you know, on a show, you've got to, of course, understand how the desk works and understand all this great syntax of how to make a cue and how to set the timing. And if you get into effects, how to tell it to go between red to blue or whatever it is you're trying to build. But it, it doesn't really need to be that complex. We've got all these great things happening on cell phones and on computers and, and lots of technology in the world, and I don't see that in the current controllers. So I think we're going to get to a point where that creative side that was become so important with a programmer is going to become even more important to figure out how to take the creative vision and make it happen faster and easier. And, and so I think some of that computer geekery stuff will go away, although it's going to be a while because you look at like the MA2, and part of what makes that popular is they have this really extensive macro system that you can build all kinds of amazing things. And now they've opened it up even further where you can almost write your own code within the MA2. And so we're seeing a lot more computer geekery going into it. But there's a trade-off because that then allows uh, less actual creative time on stage when you're sitting there writing all these scripts and doing all these things on the desk that might be really cool on the desk. But how cool is it really on stage? Exactly. And that's what the, really matters. The, the, ultimately, those don't actually have any result other than maybe speeding you up when you're actually writing cues. Right. And, and so that's why I think in the future we're going to see more emphasis on the creative side and, and less so much on that, that geekery side. Although I guess my one comment about that would be, uh, you know, I know that the, that the, ways people in, the ways in which people have tried to make that happen, at least recently, have been using abstraction layers. Mm -hmm. So the the way you interact with the fixture with the console is different than the way that the console interacts with the fixture. Correct. And that never quite seems to work as well as I want it to. Yes, that is a problem with that, that model for sure. So um, hopefully there's a way around that. Yeah, I think what we need is we need a new paradigm in how we program. And, and that actually even goes down to we need something different to replace DMX because the whole 0 to 255 concept of controlling parameters is really outdated, and we really need something better to control our parameters of our fixtures. That's totally fair, and you know that may well be the reason that 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 the abstraction stuff doesn't work quite as well as we'd like. There, it's just because we have to, not because we want to. Right, and and that's where the industry needs to grow. And and there was a plan, the 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 dream of ACN uh, to get there, but unfortunately that kind of stalled out and hasn't happened and isn't going to happen anytime soon. Uh, so. Let's talk about where you got started and what your background was. Sure. So I started um, in high school. I was in doing theater, of course, like we all do, right? Of course. Um, I, I, at the time, uh, in junior high, I thought I wanted to be an actor. I was doing magic shows, uh, doing, going out and doing magic shows on my own, had a little magic business, and thought I wanted to be an actor. And, um, in fact, my parents sent me to this private school in Dallas, and we shopped around at different schools specifically looking for their theater program. And at the very beginning, the first show I was in was a uh, Shakespeare night where they had different scenes from different Shakespeare shows. And I was in one scene, 
And then the rest of the time I was in costume wearing my tights up running the lighting desk. And I kind of, <laughs> and from then on I got the bug and was like, I love this lighting and I love doing the, the, the backstage tech theater. And, and I just went from there and never looked back as an actor and continued on in the tech theater world. Um, so how did you turn that into a career? Well, I, it was kind of cool because what happened was when I got kicked out of that uh, private school because I was skipping classes to go spend more time in the theater. Oh. <laughs> um, I had to switch back to the public school where I was growing up in Irving, Texas. And I went to this school and I said, oh, I, I want to do your uh, technical theater stuff. And the theater teacher told me, she goes, oh, you mean that stuff that the people who don't get cast in the show do? Wow. And I went, oh boy. <laughs> wow. Okay. This is not the place. So I discovered across the street from this high school I was now going to was a community theater uh, civic auditorium place. And I went there and applied for a job and got a job. And that's literally where I started working in the industry right away. So um, I started working in this theater, doing everything from fall spot to running lights, uh, running sound, whatever I was doing. And at the same time, I started uh, freelancing in the Dallas area. And so I got involved with the, the union there, got on their call list. I was never a union member, but I was on their call list. Uh, so they would call me to do different gigs. And while doing all that, that was around the time when the first ever LDI happened. And the first LDI happened happened to be in Dallas, which was great. And so I went to that mainly with an interest in special effects for movies. That's what I really thought at that point I was going to fall towards. And then I went to this first ever LDI and I, and I found this company called High End Systems. And I went, wow, they're really cool. And I found all this other stuff going on. And that's where I started really falling for the automated lighting and trying to learn as much about it as I could. Which today actually is used as special effects in movies. So <laughs> That's true, yes. Very much true. Um, so, so from there, I just kind of started playing around with, with what I could, which turned out to be Intelbeam 400s and then eventually the 700s. And doing shows in Dallas, again, on the call list for the union was great because I would get to go do load-ins. And I remember loading in and doing, uh, loading in icons, you know, LSD icons, putting those in. And... Uh, seeing Verilites and seeing some, you know, all kinds of different fixtures that were on the tours of the day and getting a lot of experience there and then starting just wherever I could. I, I remember doing a show um, that I was designing this little, it was actually a community theater show that I was designing and I had a very small fee they paid me of like, I don't know, 150 bucks or something. And I went and talked the local lighting company into renting me one IntelliBeam with a LED controller so I could work it into my show. So I had the show with all my theatrical lights and then one IntelliBeam just so I could learn to program it. Nice. You know, because there weren't visualizers at the day and you couldn't practice any ways like, like that. So that's how I started programming and learning to program. And then I went to um, High End, their first ever programming seminar. I went down there, got to know Tim Grievous. When, and, when and, was that? Um, gosh, when was that? It was probably early 90s, like 91 maybe. Okay. Somewhere around there. So, you know, so I just kind of grew my career from there. Um, one of the really cool things was just anywhere I could, I would take the opportunity to, to practice with lights. I would go to the, the lighting shops and say, can I practice with the lights you have in the shop today? And they'd say, sure. And so I'd set up two emulators. I remember those lights from high end. Set those up and start programming on them or whatever they had, I would try to learn as best I could. And I met this this guy named Eric, Eric Durr, which he's no longer around in the industry, but I actually used to call him I-Beam Eric because he owned his own uh, eight IntelliBeams, and he would cross-run them to this company in Dallas. And I would go over to his house, 
and he had modified his garage and we would just pre-program and we'd stay up all night long practicing and programming and figuring out whatever we could on the on the controllers and whatever we could learn to make design-wise and programming-wise, programming these IntelliBeams. I feel like it's worth mentioning that this is still possible. You can still do this. Yes. You know, this isn't something from the distant past. If you develop a relationship with your local rental shop, if they don't have the gear out on the street, a lot of times you can go in and work with it. And you know you can work with a console and with fixtures. And so rather than trying to work offline on your computer with a, you know, with a, with a clunky offline editor and a kludgy 3D program, you can be doing it in real life. You know, they want you to learn how to use the gear that they have to rent you. Yes, yes. And I, I tell this to, to everyone I come across, all the young people who are always asking me, how do you get involved in the business? I tell them, I say, call your local shop, ask them if you can come hang out, if you can, you know, set up some lights that aren't around and program them. And, and 90% of the time, they're going to say yes. You know, if you're a nice person and you clean up after yourself and you sit in the corner and don't bother anybody. And then the bonus is you're doing that. And if they have a gig, you might not get a programming gig right away, but if they're like, oh, we need another tech on this gig to come out, instead of picking up the phone, they're like, hey, there's a guy in the shop. He's been here for the last three days. Let's go ask him. Exactly. You know, and you pick up opportunities just like that because you're there and they see you, you're dedicated. And, you know, and, and that's the big thing in this whole business is passion. The people who are passionate about lighting and, and what they do, they're the ones who I always see succeed. And I can pretty much tell when I talk to, to young people if they've got that passion and drive in them or not. If they just think, oh, it'll be cool. I could go do big shows, too. I've been playing on the desk for years, and I, I'm awesome. But they don't really care and have that passion and that drive and that excitement you get when you're programming a show and when you're running a show. You can see it, and you, you know when they're, they're not really going to make it far. Uh, and and that's, the, that's the problem is the kids who have the – don't have the passion they won't take the time to call the rental shop and go there and do it they'll be like yeah you know i'll keep playing video games or i'll maybe look at ma on my computer and and practice there but they they won't go those extra steps and it's frustrating yes but clearly you had the drive you had the, the sort of the fire in you to, to to make it happen those first couple of years you were you know you were working at the community theater and you were doing everything and so you're learning everything there uh, what was the next step from there? Uh, next step from there was I decided I wanted to go back to school. So I decided I wanted to uh, to go to Cal Arts in, in uh, Valencia, California. So I applied there and I went back to Cal Arts. This was in 95, yeah, 95. Moved out to Cal Arts and I was there for a semester. And while I was there, it was great opportunities, but the uh, master students, the professors, everyone, they all came to me and they said, why are you here? You're teaching us. Because at that point, I had had about seven years, seven or eight years professional experience, both with programming and just doing shows. And I would bring into the school, I would bring in IntelliBeams, and I'd bring in these different fixtures and program them. And, and they said, why are you here teaching us? And I said, you're right. Why am I here teaching you and paying money to teach you? So, so I left school and I went uh, back to being freelance in L.A., and doing just what we were just talking about, I went to a lighting shop called Towards 2000. And I said, I just want to hang out here and, and learn and, and do. And it was really great because Mark Rollins, the owner of Towards 2000, he told me, he said, you know, all my guys use this new thing here called Status Q, and they love it. He goes, but I just spent $50,000 on this other thing called Whole Hog 2, and, and nobody will touch it. <laughs> and, and I was like, okay, I'll learn that. So I just started in his shop playing and learning this thing called Whole Hog 2. And I found out who the, the people were who made it. And I started emailing uh, Nick and Beaky, the, the guys who created it, and getting to know them. 
And, and that was really a great time because he gave me that great opportunity on this brand new desk. And the other funny thing was what I really liked about it was it had a cue list and I was kind of more of theatrical focused. And at that time, the status quo did not have a cue list. Really? And, and, what was the structure of status quo then? Uh, it was kind of an LED controller, but I always said like steamrolled and flattened out <laughs> into a desk. Oh, okay. So it kind of came with that mentality of presets, the, not, not like a palette, but presets like cues, uh, presets and chases. So either a static cue or a chase, and you would just trigger these on a page. And it was great for concerts and for busking and you know, things like that. But for an organized theatrical show, you didn't have any cues or a cue list or anything. It's crazy. And uh, that's where I loved the, the Hog 2 at that point because it, it had that structure, of course, you know, the, the cue list. And so I started on that, and I started writing fixture libraries, and that got me onto certain shows because they didn't have a library for the, the status quo, so I could use it on the, the whole hog or whatever. And I was doing quite a lot with that at that time. And then, of course, Mark also offered me a job, so I worked with him as a rental manager for a little while as well. What became of T2K? I remember reading about them in, in like Lighting Dimensions back then. Well, he uh, eventually changed. After 2000, he changed the company to called, be, be called Beyond 2000 because he couldn't be t- towards 2000 anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he also was selling uh, used lighting product for quite a while on the Internet. But he eventually got involved in um, some other things of helicopters and helicopter tours. And I think over time he closed up the shop and... He's focused on that, from my understanding. Oh, I see. And what's interesting is I recently was uh, with uh, Matt Shimamoto at Volt Lights in L.A., and he had told me he moved into a new space because his, his company's growing and all this, and he said, come on by. So I stopped over, and I realized as I drove up, he moved into the old Towards 2000 offices. And so it was really crazy to go back there and be walking around. I hadn't been in that building in 10 oh. years and be like, oh, this is where my office was. Oh, this is where this was. <laughs> And uh, I feel like, you know, if, if I may, this, that's another thing that's worth noting. Uh, writing your own profiles, even if the profiles exist for the fixture, sometimes that can be a great education into both how the console thinks and how the fixtures work. Mm-hmm. I end up having to make adjustments to most of the profiles that come with the console, but that's fine because it sort of gets me in the right mindset and sort of sees what, what changes do I have to make this work the way I need it to work. Yeah, that's awesome because my current pet peeve right now is with fixture libraries and with with both designers and programmers who implicitly trust their fixture library to tell them what the fixture does. And, and I find that horribly wrong. It's what happens is people look at like, like for example, a designer might see at a trade show or read something or be talked into a particular light. And like, okay, I'll put 20 of those lights on this show. And then the, the programmer patches them in and they get on show site and the designer will say to the programmer, Oh, show me what this light does. Does it have, one gobo wheel, two gobo wheels, and they, they push through the, the buttons on the desk and go, oh, it's got this, 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 this. And the designer will say, does it have an iris? Or, I'm sorry, a prism. Does it have a prism? And the programmer will look through his library and go, no, there's no prism there. And then they'll move on, and then eventually the designer might be upset because that light didn't have a prism. But in reality, that light had a prism. It just wasn't written into the fixture library. Yeah, or it was called, like, frost or beam shaper or something. Correct, correct. Yeah, we... When I was at Verilite, I designed the VL4000 spot. I was the product manager on that. And one of the things in there is, of course, on the, on the fixed color wheels, we have a minus green. And a very well-respected designer had them on a show, and he reported back to me afterwards that he liked them. But he said, you know, the fixtures were kind of green. And I said, well, did you use the minus green on, on wheel two? And he said, 
no, my programmer said there was no minus green. And he went back and asked his programmer again. It turns out that the MA library they were using, it was labeled pink. Now, if either one of them had read the user manual, they would have seen that it said that there was a minus green filter, but neither one of them did. They just trusted their library said there was no minus green, so there must not be a minus green. I see. The, the fixture libraries are the key to how we program. We implicitly trust that that library is correct, but unless you really take the time to break down and look at it, you could be missing out on features that are in the light. You know, the, the manufacturers put all these great things built in macros, or maybe if the, the gobo can rotate, or maybe it can shake, or or there's a f- different effects built into the uh, control channels or, or whatever it is, they, they put a lot of thought and knowledge into it. And if it's not in the fixture library, most people don't know it, if it exists or not. And then the fixture library problem, where do they come from? Are they in the desk? Do they pass around from person to person? Are they on a share site? And how do you know what to trust? Yeah. You know, I, I know for me, I really enjoy reading manuals. I've written a lot of the industry manuals. I've done a lot of things. So it's kind of my world, but I like to read them. And so anytime I do a show, I sit down, if I don't know the fixture, and I look at the user manual, maybe not every bit of it. I don't need to know how to change out the iris or whatever, but I do need to understand the DMX map and what the feature set is. Absolutely true. And I hope that that message reaches out there and people who don't do that currently think about it. Yeah, me too. Because like I said, that's my current rant and that I'm on a lot is understand your fixtures and don't trust the fixture library just because it's there or says this. You need to look at it and understand what you're actually programming. You had mentioned some stuff about programming best practices in your book, The Automated Lighting Programmer's Handbook. Can you tell me a little bit about that book and, and where the concept for that book came from? Yeah, that, that book, you know, I, like I said, I, I've been writing for PLSN for on, on my 15th year now. I've been doing it for about 14 years, a little over 14. And the idea was when I first started with that, I just started writing the, those things at PLSN. And when I first started writing, I, I wrote just about common sense things to me of programming. So I wrote how we number our fixtures on a rig, that we don't ever start with a zero, that we start, you know, 1, 11, 31, 21, if you're, if you're grouping your fixtures apart. That way, when you look up at a, at a truss or a batten, you know that fixture 5 is 35 coming across. You don't have to have that zero in there and, and figure out 1, 2, 3, 4, where, where is it at? Just some simple knowledge like that that I wrote in my first few PLSN articles, and people would email me and call me and be like, that's the smartest thing. I never thought of that. Wow, that's exciting. And I realized how as an industry of programmers, we need to share this information. We need to share it out with everyone and help elevate the lighting programmer from just all these rogue people that are out there doing things to a point of we're all a shared industry. So I started really writing and sharing that that information. So I did that, and after the first year, I thought, this could be a good book. And Richard Kadena, at the same time, was also writing in PLSN, and he had just published a book of his first year of articles. And I thought, there you go, I could do the same thing. And in fact, in my family, my grandfather and my father both have published books from what they do. And so I guess it's in my blood as well. <laughs> a lot of the book is evergreen. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you really tried to keep it, well, one, what were the consoles of the time when you wrote it? When I wrote it, it was uh, mostly Whole Hog 2. Whole Hog 2 was definitely king of the day. Of course, there were AVOs and other desks around, but Whole Hog 2 is, was the desk that was in use and that I was using all the time at that point. But but you're right. All my writing, whether it's PLSN or in the book, has all been very much nonspecific for brands or syntax. My My concept, particularly in the book, was to make it something that could last for 
not forever because I know things are going to change, but last for quite a long time. And, and I want to focus on just those skills other than the syntax that we all need to know and understand as programmers, how to organize things, how to lay out your desk, how to think about building queues or building chases or building effects, all those type things that you can use on any desk with any, any fixture. You don't have to have any specifics. So in fact, in the book, the only place that I mention any specific products are in the, the three uh, appendixes in the back where I talk about case studies of specific shows. I think that that keeps it fresh for, I have bought copies for young programmers. It, it's still meaningful, you know, if, if today, if you're working on an MA2 or an EOS, you still have to have those skills and understand those management issues. Why don't you tell me what that sort of skill set is? Right, well, well, first you have to understand just the concepts of programming. You know, understanding tracking is, is a big deal. You know, if you don't understand tracking, you're going to come into all kinds of problems in, in your show because you're going to look at the stage, you're going to write something, record the cue, and you're going to come back and play it back, and it's not going to look the same. What if you understand tracking and your desk doesn't? <laughs> understanding tracking, that, that seems critical. Yep, understanding tracking, understanding how palettes or presets work, uh, of how there's something that can be updated and or a reference. I think those are extremely powerful, even if you're not, you know, a lot of people think that a, a palette or a preset is just for a touring show. They think, oh, I don't need to make palettes for everything unless I'm on a touring show. But in reality, it's great on any type of production. I always give the example of you're doing a corporate event, a one-off, and you've got the lights focused on the podium. And then the, the guy who walks up the podium doesn't like the lights in his eyes, and he picks it up and moves it over two feet and sets it back down and starts talking. Well, you want to be able to update that position palette. Oh, that never happens. <laughs> yeah. You want to be able to update that position palette and have that same information be correct through all of your cues. I, I had to, uh, many years ago, this is kind of funny, I had to go out on this, this show called uh, Lori Line. Her and her orchestra did this big Christmas show. And the, the person who had programmed originally, and this is way back again on Status Q, didn't understand using the, the palettes in Status Q. So he had programmed everything with hard values. And they had all these soloists that would pop up out of the orchestra and do these solos, and they'd have to hit them every time with the fixtures. And everything was hard-coded in every queue. And so each day of the show, they would load in, he would set it up, and he couldn't get all his queues updated because there were hundreds and hundreds of queues. He was running out of time. Oh, my God. So I had to come in and reprogram this whole show and put pallets in there so that, of course, now you can just update these 20 pallets of these different positions of the soloists. And there you go. You're done. Whenever they solo, it's correct. It's funny. I never thought of palettes and presets as being something that people might not use. But maybe that's because my first interaction with moving lights, well, no, that's not true. But I decided I wanted to learn more about them after I did some corporate events using an Express with Technobeams. Mm -hmm. And I went to a class with Vicki Claiborne. So I started out with palettes and presets, palettes and presets. So it never occurred to me that there were people that needed to learn that beyond the first day, you know? <laughs> right. Well, a lot of people, what I see they do is when they learn, they don't learn that. And so what they do is they just start programming and, and they'll move the light over to point it at, you know, the podium and then they'll keep programming. And they'll even move it to the podium each time and there'll be a different focus each time on the podium in reality. You know, even if you're just storing that so you can just, as a quick recall, even if you never use the updating point of a palette, it's a great tool just to have things that are pre-made that you pre-made that you can select yeah. from the desk. And, and it shocks me that people don't use them, but they do. There's a lot of people who don't use them. And I, I did an experiment about five years ago. I thought, I'm going to challenge myself on, I had this little, it was a charity event that I did. And it was just, 
I think, eight fixtures, and I was mainly doing it for fun and helping out a friend. Uh, I'm just going to try. I'm going to tackle this one, and on purpose, I'm not going to create any pallets and see what it's like. And it was this little charity event with some speeches and, and an awards show, and, and maybe a, I think there was one dance number or something. And it was so awful. I mean, the show looked great. Nobody knew. But for me, it was so awful doing it without any pallets. <laughs> But it was a fun challenge to to see and appreciate and understand what life A was like before we had them and B what it's like for people who don't use them. Mm. Seeing raw values in the you know whatever contents window, whatever kind of console it is, they have some kind of way to see the cues. And seeing raw values mm-hmm. makes me go, Oh, what did I do wrong? Exactly. You know, and, and another great trick we used to do on Hog Two particularly, and I still use it today, is making a palette specifically so you have a label in your data. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we used to, um, when we build our own mark queues, we would have a palette that was actually intensity at zero, but we would label it mark so that you could look back in your queues anywhere and you would know not that you put it at zero, but that the light's at zero and it's marking. Oh, yeah, we, we still do that. I mean, it helps sometimes, especially if we're working out of order. Right, exactly. That, that's what I mean. It's still very useful to just to, to label something that... Yeah, you could have a raw value of zero or 50% or whatever in there, but to be able to have a descriptive term is a lot more useful. What's like the one thing from the book or the one thing from your experience, the one thing from your experience as an educator that you wish would be just emblazoned onto the face panel of every console in the world? Definitely it would be four letters, RTFM, which means read the freaking manual. So much, so much. Because, you know, a lot of people take pride and they'll tell me, oh, I never read a manual. I don't read manuals. I'm so cool. And particularly a console manual, there's so much information in there. You know, we already touched on fixture manuals and how important that is. But there's so much information in console manual because there's so many different ways to do things. And even if you take the training class or you've been on a console for 10 years, if you pick up that manual and you start flipping through it and reading it, you're going to find something you didn't know existed in the desk. And, and I can tell you from years of doing tech support for people on consoles, 99% of the calls are things that are in the manual. You know, it's, it's all right there. And, and all the manual, all the consoles these days, you can hit a help button, open up the manual right there on, on the screen for you. You can have it on your phone. You can have it on your laptop. It's accessible. It's easy to search. There's no reason for people to not know something if they take the time to read the manual. I always feel terrible when I call tech support and it's a thing that's in that's the manual. Oh, yeah, it, it happens because a lot of times it's you're freaking out, you're nervous, you're, you're stressed, or it's just the easier way to pick up the phone and make the phone call than it is to take the time to go look for it. Although on one occasion the issue was uh, it was called something totally different and using search wasn't helping me because I, I couldn't figure out what term it was they had used. Well, and, and it's true with that or with that, you know, sometimes manuals aren't fully updated and it's only in the release notes, but it's not in the manual yet, and so you might not find the information. I mean, that's always frustrating. Yes, very. But I used to have a friend of mine that would call me up, and he would call up, and he would say, Brad, I've already looked through the manual. I can't find it in the manual. I searched the forums online. I can't find it, so can you please answer this question for me? Because <laughs> he would know that if he called and asked me a question that was in the manual, I'd give him a hard time. I'd be like, it's on page 47. Can't you find it there? <laughs> so that, that would be the thing that I think should be on every desk is you know read the manual, RTFM. Um, and one other thing, going back to, to the book and keeping it you know, evergreen, as you say. Well, that's a term I got you know, when we're doing TV, and they're like, we're going to bank this episode. This episode is going to be evergreen, so we can run it whenever. Oh, I see. Well, th- that, again, has been a key thing in, in the book, but I have had to do updates. I updated and did the second edition about five years ago. 
And so I updated with more information about LEDs and how to work with LED products as that technology has come to more and more fruition. I also updated more about networking and, and, you know, took out some things out of the book, added some things. And I'm right now working on the third edition that'll come out um, early next year, again, with more updates to the book. So there's a lot of things changing in it and being added. You know, the the meat of it's the same, but you still have to freshen it up here and there. That's great. And and I might add, you you said at the beginning that it was through Focus Press, and, and that is who it was originally, but they have been bought and sold uh, three or four times, so it has become different publisher brand names, but it's always easy to find on Amazon. Oh, my apologies. No, no problem. It's always best to find on Amazon. Just search for Automated Lighting Programmer's Handbook, and boom, it'll pop right up. All right, that's where I got it. And it's even in uh, electronic editions, too. Oh, excellent. So you can put that on your phone, too. Yep. All right, moving on to the shows. That's what people want to talk about, especially some of the larger stuff you've done. You can, can we talk about the Olympics? Yeah, yeah, sure can. What, uh, what year was that? That was uh, 2000 Olympics in Sydney, Australia. Okay. How did you find yourself there? Uh, well, that was because of high-end systems, because high-end systems had the, uh, the bulk of the show. So being that I was working at high-end in the programming department at the time, I had lots of opportunities, and that was, of course, one of them. And that was really great. It was myself and uh, Vicki Claiborne, actually, who you mentioned earlier. We got to go over on behalf of High End and be involved in the show and in the programming and all. And, and she'll be on a future episode. Oh, super. She's wonderful. So, so yeah, so it was because of High End. Um, it, it was The show had seven Whole Hog 2s running the opening and closing ceremonies. And a whole bunch of cyber lights and studio beams and studio colors and a lot of other gear. Uh, there was also a strand was it a 501i i think running a lot of fixtures as well and now how was the system broken down among those consoles and why was it broken down that way well originally when they when they first started talking about this we were talking with the designer john raymond and his initial idea was to have try to make as few consoles as possible so what we had looked at doing was what he had looked at doing was using the overdrive box i don't know if you remember that from the the whole hog 2 yeah, it gave you seven universes on a console of that time period. That was pretty amazing. Right, because the Hog 2 only had four, and you could put in this overdrive box, and it would take you to seven. But it did not give you any additional processing power. Yeah, there was that, wasn't there? Yeah, so <laughs> as you added more fixtures to control with these seven universes, the problem was as you started doing chases or color effects or whatever, it could start to bog down and slow down the refresh rate of the fixtures and, and things that were happening. So that was their original plan, and, and when I talked to them and I uh, worked with them on the, the system layout, I said, you know, this isn't really the best way to do this. I said it would be better to just use each desk with its full four universes and use more consoles and more programmers. So they agreed, so we set it up with seven different whole hog twos, and what they did is on each side of the stadium, there were rows and rows of cyber lights, and split those in half, so every other truss of cyber light was on a different desk. So you had the, the north side and the south side of the stadium, each with two programmers. And then there was a guy programming the space cannons that were on the back side of the stadium, on the, on the far side, on the east. And then on the west was the stage. That was another programmer for the stage side. And then another programmer for all the fixtures that were actually on the field. And then on top of all that, there was also a programmer, again, on the strand desk. And she uh, programmed all the audience lighting, and there were lights that lit up the architecture of the building and all that, and she did all that. I actually took a diary uh, every day of when we were programming. When we would come back in the morning, 
Um, every single day I, I made a diary, not knowing I was writing a book later, but I just happened to do this little diary of what it was like programming the Olympics. Awesome. And so that turned, I thought that'd be a great thing to include in the book. So everybody's listed in there. So how, how long were you involved with the production before the production? Well, I was, we went down to Australia. Vicky went down first uh, to, to conduct some Whole Hog 2 training classes so everybody would be on the same speed with Whole Hog 2. So she went down about a week before I did. I was down there for seven weeks total. So that was about three or four weeks before the, the opening ceremony. And then we did the opening ceremony, and then we were off for a week and a half when they did that thing called the Olympic Games. You know, the athletes do things. We got to be <laughs> off, which was great because – we got out of Sydney and went and saw all of Australia, which was wonder- really wonderful, and then came back and did the closing ceremonies. And actually, the closing ceremonies, we, we reduced down the number of consoles because not as much was needed at that point. But total production really started for us programming-wise once we got to Australia. So I would say, you know, about four weeks before the show. What, uh, what kind of management did you have to do console-wise? I know that the designer was saying to feed the machines, cue, whatever. Mm-hmm. But what, what management were you doing above that and beyond that? One, as an operator of your own desk, and two, systematically. Yeah, it was interesting because I don't think anyone has ever done or maybe has since ever done a show with seven different programmers all programming the same elements of the show. You know, I mean, we all were making the same look on stage. It wasn't like one guy's just doing LED walls and the guy's doing media servers and the guy's doing the lights. It was all of us working together. Yeah. Uh, so what we did is we set up a... Uh, WYSIWYG studio and we had there, there's this great picture in my book of it it was so funny because imagine seven programmers with hog twos each of us had two monitors and when i say monitors i mean the big crt monitors not flat screens like we have today uh each with two monitors for the whole hogs and then a big monitor for the WYSIWYG. so three monitors for each console and seven consoles all in this room all around and then the designer's workstation and the assistant's workstation. <laughs> wow. It was, it was this crazy, crazy space that we were all in. And then there was another master WYSIWYG station that could actually bring in all the systems together so you, the designer could look at all the, the beams at once, as opposed to each of us just looking at our own beams on our own WYSIWYGs. Oh, you didn't each have your own, like, master shot? No, because it actually took... It was pretty crazy to to look at all these beams and you didn't and trying to figure out which ones were yours because oh I see yeah and this is you know you couldn't get all the rendering and so there was a lot of stick beams and and it just would be very difficult when you're talking all these lights and you have controls of a third of them which ones are yours where do you move um, so so he created a system John did the, the designer he created a system for doing pallets. He, this grid system that he laid out. So we all built all the same position palettes and the same color palettes. So he could call out things that would be the same. Um, and then he had ideas of what he was going to want for each of the different acts within the show. And of course we would build cues accordingly, but on our own desk, we all had our own views, kind of our own layout of how we each individually programmed. And they were very similar because Vicky pretty much taught everybody how to use the hog too, other than myself and Rob Bell, who was there as well. Robert Bell was one of the programmers who also is one of the gentlemen who created WYSIWYG. So, you know, the, the programming process basically was John would come up with an idea, he would kind of describe what he wanted, and we all would set in and we would talk openly, okay, well, we think we should all put the beams into these types of positions and this color, and, oh, you know, this is a fire thing, let's make an orange-yellow chase to, to flicker, how are you going to build it, let's do it as an effect, the effect of the speed of 
27, and we would kind of share the ideas, and then we would all build it together. Wow. <laughs> and so, it, yeah, it was pretty crazy. You know, you, you think today with all the network desks, it's so much easier, but then it was all just, he had a big whiteboard at the front of the room, and he'd write out the ideas, and we would start programming and, and make it all happen. Um, and, then, and then once we got to the show site a couple of years, a couple of years, couple, that felt like years. Seemingly a couple, of, weeks a couple later, of years later. Yes, a couple of weeks later, we got to the show site, and we had to update the positions. Well, that was a crazy game because then we all were working in the same space at the same time. And he had this grid of, again, it was like 100 positions across the field. And he had a couple of assistants down on the field with a, with a big parking cone would stand in a position and we all would try to focus this position and with everybody trying to put their lights on top of everybody else's it really got to be very difficult very confusing so he had to get more assistance in and we had to each share different sections of the grid at a time so maybe i would take the northeast corner and somebody else would take the southwest corner and we'd work down and then we would flip-flop where we were working to update all of our positions and then once we did that of course when you're talking uh, trim heights of over 200 feet and in a giant stadium, then the WYSIWYG became useless because it was, even though it was to scale and all, just you know, hanging a cyberlight an inch off is going to have a huge difference on where the beam lands. Yeah. So we thought we could still sit back and use WYSIWYG once we got there, and no, we couldn't. Once everything was updated and live for the stadium, you could no longer touch the WYSIWYG because it just didn't make any sense anymore. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And how did playback work? How did actual running of show work? Yeah, that was interesting because, again, originally, in the original plan, the idea was to MIDI show control all the consoles together and then have one operator hit the go button and it would trigger all of them. And that sounds really cool and exciting and and all, but, and I was going to be the one doing that. And I said to John, I said, you know, we're all here. We're all professionals doing this. We all can hit go when you call go within, you know, instantaneous of each other. So... Why would anybody want to come program the Olympics and not get to run it? I said, that doesn't make any sense. We should all get to run it. And he goes, you're right. <laughs> so we decided to throw off the MIDI, get, get that out of there, and we all, each of us, just took a go at the same time. Of course, we built the same cue list ahead of time, so that helped a lot. And then he could just call Q27 go, and we would all hit go at the same moment. And then we all got to work as a team, all of us being there for the Olympics and do it, which was, of course, lots of fun. It's hard to get much bigger than that. Yeah, and you know what was cool, too, is that was the first ever Olympic ceremonies that were held entirely after dark. Oh, really? And so they, they told us that ahead of time, and they said, you know, th- this is the first one. Others have gone through sunset and into darkness, but here, the entire ceremony was the first one in total darkness. So lighting was a key part that really was overemphasized because it had never been all the way throughout the production. And so in, in that show, you know, it wasn't just illuminate the stage. It was definitely do a big light show and really be a major element of the production. The, the, the other thing that, that was interesting was, you know, back in the Hog 2 day, we all saved floppies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you saved floppies, it took a lot of time to write to a floppy. It could take, you know, a, a couple of minutes to write data to a floppy. And when your show got large enough, then you started saving to multiple floppies to your show. So you might be saving to you know three three floppies your show file, and that could take a good seven eight minutes to save that. And then you want to do two copies because it's on floppies and you don't trust them. So you're saving twice. Now you're at you know fifteen twenty thirty minutes easily to to do a backup of your show file. And so when we were programming, we had to keep that in mind as well. 
that we would program work on stuff and then we'd all have to say, okay, stop. Everybody's going to save now. And we'd take the moment to save and then we'd continue on. And everybody had to have their own routine of leapfrogging floppies so that we all had backups of everything. And then the designer's assistant, of course, would take them and, and archive them onto a computer as well. So there was a lot of organization for all those saves across all these different desks as well. And of course, on a, on a desk with no hard drive, no matter how long it takes to save to a floppy, you, you, don't, you can't afford to lose anything. Exactly. And you know, I, I used to always say the, the least amount of time you should lose is about 30 minutes if, if something went wrong. You should be saving about every 30 minutes. But it gets difficult to do that when you know it's going to take you 30 minutes to save. Yeah. And so you're, you're working on a song and you're getting into it and you're like, let's just finish the song and then we'll save. And so you might go an hour, hour and a half before you save and then you're, you're riding on this funny edge. And I'm so happy that we got out of that and at least the desk saved to a hard drive continuously these days. Now, of course, you still need to make a backup to external media. Can't just count on that hard drive, but at least that moment of time is not so stressful anymore. Yeah, yeah. Now it's, even if the desk dumps, you probably saved the hard drive five minutes ago or something. Right. So you save to your flash drive three times in a day, and really, you never lose anything. Right. Which is great. As long as your flash drive doesn't fail, and then you're fine. <sighs> well, there's that too. Or, or the console doesn't get stolen. That's happened to people. Or, you know, what happened this year with uh, ACDC, they were pre-programming, you know, at, at Nag Earth, and they went away for the evening. They came back, and the shop burned down with the consoles and the visualizer and everything in the shop. Oh, my God. And luckily, Cosmo is a professional good programmer, and he made backups and took them with him that night when he left of his show file. Now, apparently, my understanding is they had not backed up the latest version of their visualizer file. And that was still there. And the room that they were programming in, they were able to recover the laptop. And even though it had smoke and water damage, they were able to get the show file or the visualizer file off that laptop. Good. <laughs> but, but it just shows, you know, you, you think, oh, I'm just pre-programming. I'm locking it up for the night in my lighting shop and going to go to bed and come back. It might not be there in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> you got to always make backups and put them in multiple places because anything could happen. That's a really good example. Because you know you think on you know you think about the show site as being the place where bad things happen. Yes. Not the shop. Not the nice cushy office that you're pre-programming in or whatever. Exactly. And so I always like to to not just that I keep the copies, but I give them to other people as well, or I put them on a now you can put them up in the cloud somewhere, you know, yeah. something so that it's not just on your person. Because also that's the other thing. What if something happens to you? What if you you know you go out to dinner that night and you get hit by a bus? So let's hope that doesn't happen. But you're unconscious in the hospital, and the show's going, where's that latest show file? Yeah. If you've at least given it to the designer, or you've given it to the director, or they all know where your online storage is or something, somebody can have knowledge to get to that. I know that there are people that have different opinions about Google Drive and, and Dropbox, you know, which is better. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to use whichever one the show is using. Yes. And just make a folder in there that's show files. And, and, you know, the, the other thing tying into that, tying back to the Olympics, is you've got to always expect the unexpected. On, on that particular Olympics, you know, the, the big deal always on every Olympic is how do they light the, the cauldron? That's always the big finale to the opening ceremony. And the, the cauldron lighting was this big deal that she would put the torch down on the fire and this ring of fire would rise up over her and then it would transition and go up through the audience and then transition into the this big pole that would raise it up and that was the, the mass that held the Olympic fire for the entire games. 
And it worked. We would rehearse it in secret at, you know, four in the morning at night. It was beautiful every time. And come showtime, this thing that should not have ever failed, it failed. And it was this horrible nine minutes of television where the the woman holding the torch had to stand under this cart that had failed with the fire over her head and wait for them to figure out how to get it reset and going again. And for us at the lighting desk, we were all there trying to figure out what to do next. And the designer, John, he was looking at the director of the show trying to figure out what to do next. And, you know, we were in that moment of standby queue 185 and he goes okay we're gonna skip ahead to q 202 everybody stand by so we all had typed in you know go to 202 and standing by to hit enter and waiting and seeing what was going to happen and luckily they got it moving again and, and were able to to do the finale but it was a tense nine minutes of when this thing that was designed never to fail failed live during the show and that's an eternity nine minutes on tv is yes it was an eternity <laughs> And, and and the funniest thing is, from my understanding, most of that nine minutes was the drive system having to reboot, which was a Windows 3.1 system, and it took most of that time to reboot and get ready. All right. Uh, I'd like to talk about some of the other work you've done, but your body of work is so great that I kind of want you to tell me what you want to talk about. Well, I think one of the, the really fun ones that I, I've been involved with is uh, the band called Crystal Method. Okay. They are awesome. Yes, yes, they are. Um, and what's really great is they're an electronic music band, and I've been working with them since, oh, 97. So they were an early electronic music band. I mean, today, you know, EDM is, is all the rage, which is great. But one of their big goals when they went out was they wanted to not be big rock stars. It's two guys that play keyboards uh, and, and more, but mainly they play keyboards. And they didn't want to be the, the big rock star and be lit up and be seen. They wanted to be known as they would put it, for having a Pink Floyd-style light show. Oh. And they wanted to be known for having this awesome experience that people came and had seeing this light show to their music. So it was really exciting to get to work with them for, for many years because that was their focus, was to have a great light show. What more fun could you have, you know? Um, and my friend Lawrence Upton was their designer, and I worked with him as programmer and co-designer on a lot of their tours. And as they, they grew in... 2001, uh, early summer of 2001, we did this really big tour where they had lots of money and their plan was to really hit it big at that point. And, and they were doing pretty well up until then as well. But what we designed, what Lawrence came up with was kind of a, a cone on its side. So it was this big arched system over the, the band. And then it went back down in perspective to a small point behind them. Sexy. And so the arch had on it a combination of cyber lights and studio beams and then down in the floor to light up the inside of the archway, and it was all white fabric, was a bunch of X-Pots when the X-Pot had first come out, mainly because it had three gobo wheels, so it gave us a large number of rotating gobos. So those were all on the floor to create all these trippy looks inside. And the concept of the show was to have this show in this, this archway and in this cone for everybody to be watching for the first two-thirds of the show, and then... On the outside, right and left of this arch, up high above it, we had these two pods, each with, I think it was 20 or 24 diversitronic strobes. So where you'd been watching inside this archway for two-thirds of the show, all of a sudden, it would explode out on the entire stage above it for the last third of the show. Awesome. And, and so that was kind of what the, the system looked like. Um, and again, they gave us all this time, and, and they put a lot of money into the light show, so we had two weeks with the actual rig in a rehearsal studio in Los Angeles to work on this. 
And Lawrence and I would go in every day and program a couple songs a day. And typically with their music, we would be so intense on, on the cueing that my, my general rule of thumb, which, which applies to most shows, would be for every minute of music, about an hour of programming. Yeah. Uh, this, this one, some of them, it would take a little longer, but that, that's usually a good average is every minute of music is about an hour of programming. It's funny how that's held true for you yeah. know, changes of fixtures, changes of consoles. Yeah, because, I mean, typically if you're really queuing something out and, and hitting it, of course there's times when you just put up a look and leave it. But, yeah, there's times when you really want to hit every little nuance and every little thing. You really got to take the time to do it, and that's about how it breaks out. So so we did the, the two weeks of pre-programming in there. Um, we actually hit a funny point because, again, it's all in-your-face lighting to the audience, these major light shows, not necessarily about lighting elements on the stage, a little bit with the, the scrim material we had. But we hit a point about a week, week and a half in, where we went in on a Sunday and we started programming. And he and I were, were like barking at each other. We were nagging each other. We were just in bad moods. And I looked at him. I said, you know what? We've been in here for eight days in this little room, staring at this lighting rig with strobes and craziness and all this stuff at us nonstop. I go, I think we're a little burned out on this for right now. He goes, I think you're right. And we said, let's go to the beach. So we turned it all off. We went out to, I think we went out to Venice Beach, went and got a nice food, hung out on the beach, just had a good day, you know, enjoying sunlight <laughs> and, and, and life. And then we came back in that night and we started up again. And it was the best thing ever. And, and to realize you got to take those breaks, you know? Yes. Especially when you have this, all this intense stuff happening around you with things that if you can work that in somewhere, it, it's going to help reinvigorate you again creatively and just everything the other cool thing on, on that tour was again it was this cone pattern but we realized that along the way they were playing some clubs and some festivals and so the cone was not going to work and not going to fit for some of these things yeah so we lawrence had this great idea that the curved trusses from the, the front of the, the archway could be turned 90 degrees into upstage curves that are just standing on their own oh. into like, i think it was six of them and then he had different fabric he could put in between each one to create a little fabric wall around the band with these curved trusses on it. Nice. So that was layout number two. And then layout number three was for festival rigs where it was more of just a flat background. So he had a flat psych upstage. And then flat trusses, like in a festival situation where you have you know, a downstage truss, an upstage truss, midstage truss. But we took, when we finished programming the entire show, then I went and built unique palettes for each of those three configurations and we looked at the show in each of those configurations said okay this is how it is for each one and then he had his three show files he could take with him on the road and whichever show file configuration they needed that day he would set up and load in that show file update the palettes and run the show but the queuing was all the exact same queuing and all the same programming across all three awesome now, unfortunately, on that tour, the tour went off great, but Crystal Method had this great plan to finally get some radio play because they were known in the clubs and they were kind of known underground with their music. And, and they had a run of doing movie soundtracks and television soundtracks as well. So, so they were doing great like that. And then in 2001, their management had the idea of, hey, let's do a song that could get radio play. So that they came up with this. They, they hired... Um, or worked, collaborated with uh, the guy from Stone Temple Pilots. I can't think of his name right now, the, no, the lead Scott singer. Welland. Yeah, Scott Welland, thank you. Uh, with him to do a song. So he was singing and they were you know, doing the, the electronic music and 
that was going to be the big radio hit. Well, unfortunately, it was scheduled to be released uh, about two weeks after September 11th, and the song was titled Murder. Yeah. So after September 11th, uh, no radio stations wanted to play a song titled Murder. It was actually about heroin, but still, it was called Murder, and that plan fell apart, unfortunately. Yeah, I know, they went really crazy with, like, the, oh, well, we can't play any of these songs, and you look at the, and you're like, because of the title? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so that was an unfortunate thing, and, and so that was probably the last of the big crystal method tours they did some others after that that we did a few things with them but then they found that they could do real well as djs again as the edm stuff started picking up and so they started doing dj shows where they would be paid to come in as a dj spin records and you know run the club for a night and they didn't take their production with them and it was a lot easier they've done a few things but they've always insisted that whenever they do the shows they need to have that full production because it's not just about their music for them it's about the full show and giving that experience to their fans. But I am grateful to, to have gotten to work with them for so many years and, and the, how much they relied on us as being part of, of their overall look. You know, on, on this show, when we pre-programmed for the two weeks, about a week in, the band came in to see what we had done, and they were still working in their studio on, on some, some of their music and putting together stuff for the tour, and they came in to see what we were doing. And I'll never forget Scott, one of the, the two guys in the band, he said to me, he goes, wow, you guys really have done awesome. He goes, we're going to have to really step up our game to match the lighting <laughs> show, which was great to get that feedback from him. You That's know? an amazing compliment. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening to the first part of our interview with Brad Schiller. We're going to have to leave it there for now, but we'll be back with a conclusion on the next episode of the Casting Light Podcast. You can find the links to information about Brad's book, The Automated Lighting Programmer's Handbook, as well as links to his PLSN articles on the website at www.castinglightpodcast.com. Don't forget to visit us on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast and on Twitter at Podcasting Light. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. You can learn more about them at lamedrivers.com. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Merrick. Thanks for downloading, and have a good show. Thank you.